Praise the Lord. Here we go. It's always good to be able to be heard when you say praise the Lord. Okay. Well, again, thank you for having me here. And um, make sure that's... We'll give them some time to edit that. Okay. Uh, this morning we talked about, if you weren't here, uh, the different manuscripts. I had a couple of questions. So let me just kind of finish up last time just for a couple of minutes here. I had mentioned that there's uh, 30, 38 or probably more by now cultic Bibles that were put out. And somebody asked, that's nice, but what are the good Bibles? I forgot to mention that part. Uh, but anything, anything based on a, a Textus Receptus Bible. And by that, I mean the, the full text. And we'll explain why as we go through this. We'll, we'll see some other quotes and things and tell you exactly what happened. Um, but basically, uh, as far as study Bibles go, the main study Bibles would be Old and New King James. Uh, and then there's also ESV, NASB, and NIV are like probably the main Bibles that they sell. Uh, the King James and the New King James are the ones that are based on the, the Texas Receptus. Like I said, I don't really know or am qualified to say that a translation in the New King James is better or not as good as the New King James. But... If it's all there, that's a starting point. And so we want to do those things. NIV, ESV, cut verses out. Uh, again, good translations, uh, but they tend to cut verses out. So is the NASB. Basically, it boils down to 12 Bibles that are based on the full text. The Geneva Bible and the King James, which would include the King James 1611. Those are very hard to read, but it, they're interesting. Webster Bible, Young's. Uh, there's a King James II, uh, modern King James. There's a new King James, of course. There's the literal version, L-I-T. Uh, and then there's other uh, KGV equivalents. So it's mainly in that kind of a family. And again, uh, as far as salvation goes, basic um, uh, poetry, the things in the uh, Psalms and Proverbs, the morality, it's basically all the same. But when you're missing a phrase or a word and you're trying to study prophecy, sometimes that can make a big difference. We want branches, not flowers. So very, very important. Um, so along with that, I would recommend that you use a King James or a New King James study Bible. Remember that study Bibles are the text and the notes. I can put together a King James study Bible with my notes and if you know me and know I'm Orthodox, that might be okay. might be a good thing uh, if you like my type of teaching. Uh, but it's usually a red flag. Why is there one guy that made his own Bible? He, you know, if I didn't mess with the translation but I put notes in there, you've got to kind of wonder. It's usually better to have a team of people. Uh, but that's not necessarily always the case. So a King James Study Bible, New King James Study Bible, and in addition to other things that you would want to use, somebody asked about the Septuagint, and it's got some interesting points to it. It's also corrupted in certain areas that are really obvious, but it's good to study. It's good to have one of those. Uh, in everything, if you have a computer, I would highly recommend you do some studies in Greek and Hebrew, and there's a fairly easy way of doing it without learning almost any Greek and Hebrew, is use one of the online resources or there's a, there's a program that I use called eSword. It's free. And it'll let you look at the, the King James uh, blocked with uh, the Greek and the Hebrew. 
and keyed to strongs and, and vines and, and other things like that. Uh, and again, you want to look those up and study them and find out and uh, do your own research, definitely. Uh, and also, and when we were talking about uh, 1 John 5, 7, and, and 8, I just wanted to mention that uh, they say that nobody's ever quoted these things. And these, you know, it, that particular verse doesn't exist. Well, like we said, if you cut it out, it doesn't fit with the masculine, feminine, and all that. But in 2.15, Church Father Tertullian, in Against Praxis, quoted the verse. And I read that to you. Cyprian in 2.50 quoted the verse in uh, Unity of the Church 6 uh, and also to an epistle. Uh, there was a guy named Priscillian in 380 that quoted it in a letter. Uh, and then Jerome, I read you that, uh, prologue to the general epistles. And, of course, if you go to the Greek Orthodox Church, they, they put up their uh, full Greek text. And you can go there and look at it. Not interlinear. But, again, is it this big or is it that big? So just to uh, let you know some of those things, kind of important. Okay, so... Assuming that we're true, basically what we just did is did a study of the text. And there is a received text, the Bible, that's been handed down, the Greek version of it. The Hebrew is, is, is basically perfect. There's two different Hebrew um, Old Testaments. They differ in four words. And the words don't make any difference. So Hebrew is Hebrew, and there's no argument there. When you get to the Greek New Testament... You have basically the, the received text and the critical text. And the critical text are those scholars that think that uh, the smaller is better. And it's just an assumption on their part. If, if you've got two letters, a really long one and a short one, did someone cut it down and edit it? Or did someone add a whole bunch of junk to it? And they're assuming the shorter is better. And uh, we're assuming the longer is better. Or at least my attitude has always been, give me the long version and I'll decide for myself. So I want to see the text. So let's, uh, let's look now at history and see actually what happened. So that's looking at the text and kind of figuring it out. And then also the way I do it, the prophecy aspect of it. Uh, tons of prophecies. And again, uh, just looking at everything in general. There is no religion, no holy book on this planet that predicts accurately future events except the Bible. The Bible does it with 100% accuracy. So forget about the Upanishads, the Vedas, um, the Polytext, the Quran, all those other things. Set them aside. There's actually prophecies about the uh, Islam and the Quran in the Old Testament too, but I'll digress. But anyway, so it's important to know that. So the Bible has all these prophecies. That proves it to be accurate. So now you've got a few verses that are larger or smaller. Which text do we go with? So let's look at what the church fathers said, and we'll learn what happened. Exactly. Let's start off by looking at what they say. Uh, this is ironic. Well, let me give you an introduction to them in general. Uh, the apostle John was the last of the, the, the apostles. Uh, he was uh, working in Ephesus as a missionary, basically, as the, as the head, uh, going out, planting churches, getting pastors, getting it set up, coming back, taking a break, going somewhere else again, planting churches. 
He uh, was arrested for heresy and put on the island of Patmos, and that was at 95 AD. And that's when he saw the vision and wrote the book of Revelation, which is the last Bible that we have, or the last book in the Bible that we have. Uh, he was released the next year. The Lord just used this. John, you need a timeout. So not a holiday in, but we're going to put you on a penal colony for a year so you can write a book. And then back to work. And that's exactly what happened. At that point, he went back. He was released. Uh, what happened was the Caesar that said Christianity was a problem, a major cult, anti-Roman, uh, died. The new Caesar came to uh, power and said, I don't see a problem. I'm not a Christian, but it's just a religion. I don't see them causing an army or fighting against us. So the political prisoners were released. John goes back to Ephesus and begins to continue to plant churches until he finally dies of old age. Uh, John, Timothy, and uh, Mary, Jesus' mom, are all buried in Ephesus. Uh, and that's accurate. I mean, it's been a consistent story through uh, church history all the way down. Uh, which is interesting, too, because when you get to Roman Catholicism, in the 1950s, they declared dogma uh, the, the idea of Mary's assumption. In other words, Mary didn't die. She ascended into heaven. That's mandatory for you to believe if you're a Roman Catholic now from the 1950s forward. Um, I can see, I disagree with the idea that the Pope can just change doctrine, but I could see somebody maybe being able to change doctrine, but I don't see anybody being able to change history. Watch. Oh, there never has been any Muslims. It just doesn't work. What is is what is. So if Mary died and was buried, and for hundreds of years they know where she was buried, and I, I don't necessarily want to go do a pilgrimage, but people have done that. So if that's been common knowledge, and now all of a sudden, no, that's not what happened. It's kind of strange. Um, but anyway, looking at these things, uh, so John did this. Now, one of John's disciples was a guy by the name of Polycarp. You've probably heard of him. Polycarp worked with John for over 40 years in ministry, planning churches. You know, some of you here work with Xavier, and you've been with him for 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years. Wouldn't you love to work with John and see all the people that happened and, and all the history? That would, that would be the one person I'd really love to sit down and talk with, Apostle John. But he goes on then. After he dies, Polycarp then works for another 20 years, same doing the same thing, planting churches. One of Polycarp's disciples was a guy named Justin Martyr. Uh, one of Justin Martyr's disciples was a guy named Irenaeus. And this gets us up into the second century. And these guys are rock-solid Christians. Uh, they attack heresy wherever it pops up, including Rome. Boy, did they attack Rome a lot. So these are what some of these guys uh, said about the scriptures, because that's what we're specifically studying. Uh, Irenaeus said in his book Against Heresies, it's a book, a five-volume book against the cults of his day. He says this, Heretics allege truth was not delivered by written documents, but by oral tradition. Without this oral tradition, you cannot properly understand the scriptures. Now, who said that? Heretics. So when somebody says, you can't understand the scriptures, well, let me explain it to you. You have to buy my book. You have to go along with my interpretation. Don't bother learning to study Greek or Hebrew. You're too stupid. Uh, you know, it's just that complicated. That's what a heretic would say. 
Definition of a heretic is somebody that is a cult, somebody that claims to be Christian but is not. So someone that we don't want to study with. Only heretics say things like that. He went on and said, The apostles did not pass down any hidden wisdom, just the scriptures. We've already touched on that. The apostles, whatever they wrote, was put in the canon because they were eyewitnesses of Jesus. People that weren't eyewitnesses of Jesus, whatever they wrote, was not put in the canon. Uh, New Testament anyway. So the apostles did not pass down any hidden wisdom, just the scriptures. If an older written document contradicts the newer written document, we believe the older document. That makes sense. Okay, and so that's why we always try to go back and dig up more and more scrolls. But see, now this is the point I made earlier. If we go back to the 15th century, 12th, 10th, 6th, 3rd, and it goes all the way back to those manuscripts, what manuscripts are we looking at? Now, if you walked in and took a look at the Sinaiticus with the thumbprints, the torn pages, the smudges, the lines out, writing something above it, it's been edited by a lot of people for whatever reason. That's not the manuscript you want to use. Uh, maybe somebody's trying to do something funny, maybe not, but either way, there's something wrong with it. But you go back to the earliest manuscripts, and again, a lot of the notes will say this verse was not in the earlier manuscripts. But when we go back further and we look at the sermons from the first century church, back not at 300, but like back in 200, 250, and they quote the longer form, that's just uh, perfect evidence in my opinion. He goes on and says, Obey the presbyters who are in the church, those who possess succession from the apostles together with the succession of the episcopate who have received the certain gift of truth, but it is also incumbent to hold in suspicion others who depart from the primitive succession, avoid all who do not hold the doctrine of the apostles including presbyters. So I don't care if it's a pastor, a bishop, a pope, an army. Do they? Or, and I don't care if they actually have uh, succession. If, if Pastor Xavier was standing here and said the guy before him and the guy before him and the guy before him and they could actually trace it all the way back to Peter. So that makes Xavier a, a pope for Pasadena. Even if that was true, even if that was true, is he teaching what Peter taught? Okay. And if I don't, or Xavier doesn't have a succession all the way back to Peter, but he's teaching what Peter taught, that's the important part. Okay. Now, you can understand this because in the beginning, when somebody raises up a church and starts teaching something kind of weird, and, and you to check with the other pastors in town, and you've got five pastors that were personal friends with Peter, James, John. Everybody knows them. Everybody knows what they taught. And here's this new guy, say Ken, rises up and teaches something off the wall. Well, where do you get your authority from? Did, did you know the apostles? No. Does anybody know you? No. So it's logical to go with the succession of the apostles for the first couple of generations. Anybody who's not going to lie to you that knows Peter, Paul, James, these guys. And so that's what he's talking about here. He goes on in another place in chapter 4, in book 4, he actually says, The doctrine of the apostles has been guarded 
and is a very complete system of doctrine. It has been preserved without any forging of the scriptures, neither receive addition to or suffer curtailment from its truths. Read the word of God in its entirety. Um, Let's see. Diligently explaining the Old Testament in harmony with the rest of the scriptures. So the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. So he's saying that it's a complete system of doctrine. And what I tell people, a lot of people get the idea that, well, I, I can't read Greek and Hebrew and Latin, and I don't know church history, and I don't know how things work over there. So if the experts that know all this can't figure things out, how in the world could I know that? Well, you're thinking wrong. Number one, the experts know the truth, but they're not agreeing for some reason. And if you can read English and you have an English Bible, or you can read Spanish and you have a Spanish Bible, read it. It's not that difficult. Now, there are certain things that are confusing. Usually the prophecies, especially if they haven't happened yet, are kind of vague. But the basic doctrines are the same. Anybody tells you not to read the scriptures, places you under a curse, then you don't want to, you want to ignore those. So that's what Irenaeus said about Bible authority. Okay. Now here's Clement of Alexandria. And remember, Irenaeus was a disciple of Justin Martyr, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who studied with John. And there's an interesting note about Irenaeus. Irenaeus writes this in 170. And he made a comment uh, when, when Pope Victor was coming out and saying something. I forget what it was, but he was teaching somewhat something heretical. And Irenaeus stood up and he says, look, I'm an old man. And I can't even hardly remember what I ate for breakfast this morning. But my memory as far as my childhood is crystal sharp. I can tell you of all the times that I used to meet with Polycarp out in the park under the big oak trees and we'd study scripture. And occasionally the Apostle John would come out and I'd be able to talk to him and verify what Polycarp said. I remember those days crystal clear. And I'm telling you that if the Apostle John was here and heard you say what you just said, he would clap his hands together and say, oh, God, why did you let me live to see such rank heresy in the church? He would turn around. He would walk out of here and he would never speak to you again. Now, I know the guy that was when when I was a kid. I remember that crystal clear. So he's trying to talk to to Victor like, no, no. Roman popes or not, you follow scripture. You, you didn't write it. You follow it. That's pretty amazing. There's a lot of stories like that in church history. Church history is amazing. Clement of Alexandria was a guy that went down to Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, Alexandria, Egypt has a lot of problems. And what happened was basically uh, John Mark wrote the, uh, wrote the gospel of Mark goes down to Alexandria, Egypt, and plants the first Christian church. Uh, The Gnostics are the heretics of that day, and that's what we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But basically what happened, it all started with a guy by the name of Simon Magus. You remember him in the book of Acts, the guy that tried to buy the Holy Spirit? He was a Samaritan, and uh, he had studied uh, the law, the prophets, the prophecies, got disillusioned with them. Uh, everybody's waiting on the Messiah to come. 
And you know how most people are today. We're waiting on the second coming, and everybody's like, yeah, you've been saying that for 2,000 years. So everybody's ignoring it. Uh, The Essenes formed in Israel specifically to find a place out in the desert for the purpose of having the proper humidity to make copies of the scrolls and the prophecies and the other historical books and to seal them up so they would survive well. There was another group of people that um, are called Egyptian Essenes, or were called Egyptian Essenes. They basically became kind of monks, kind of Judaism mixed with paganism, out in the desert doing their own thing in Egypt. And most of the church fathers will tell you, don't mix up the Israeli Essenes with the Egyptian Essenes, night and day. There's a difference between the church and the satanic church, just because they have the word church in them. Don't get them mixed up. Well, what happens was they had these uh, practices and um, Simon Magus decided to go to Egypt to study under these guys to learn Egyptian magic. Well, he goes down, he studies what he wants to, he comes back and is told, you missed it. The Messiah did come. He did fulfill the prophecies. His people are here now casting out demons and healing the sick. He goes and sees it and decides, hmm, this is cool. He tries to buy the Holy Spirit, and his heart's not right with God, so Peter curses him. May your money perish with you in hell. Get out. He goes on to become what the church fathers call the father of the Gnostics. He begins to talk about how the angels fell in the Old Testament, and uh, they're really the creator gods, and the one god of the Hebrews is this tyrannical god, And we don't like him. He's trying to destroy us. Salvation is when you realize that you are uh, part of a God and you're evolving into your own godhood and you save yourself. And he begins to teach these things. And then he dies. But when he dies, his cult fragments into basically 22 or more uh, different Gnostic schools. And from those schools, we get all sorts of strange things. We get Calvinistic predestination that creeps into the church from there. A lot of the Roman Catholic ideas, uh, they were the first to introduce the idea of a purgatory. Uh, and uh, the church fathers said, Christians don't teach purgatory. When you die, you go to heaven or hell. You would have gotten that from the Gnostics. Uh, they teach the veneration of Mary. We could go on through a whole bunch of things like that. But their teachings come out in a lot of weird cultic ideas. So this is what happens then down there, and they're basically stamped out by the end of the 3rd century, or almost, until a guy in in Europe hears about this new type of Christianity, which has a new type of prophecy and a new type of prayer, and goes down and studies them and brings it back to Europe in the form of the Desert Fathers. St. Anthony was the father of the Desert Fathers. That brings back this Gnostic type of prayer, a contemplative prayer, chanting, which the rabbis call sorcery. And it becomes standard practice inside the Roman Catholic Church, not in the Protestants, until the 1960s when everything starts merging together. We're not supposed to practice sorcery in the church. We're not supposed to have idols in the church. Uh, Those are forbidden, and everybody seems to not care and do those things, which indeed is a prophecy. Revelation says the end-time church will not repent of its sorcery. So this is the stuff going down in Egypt. And they actually have, remember I was talking about if you don't know for sure and there's no ancient Greek manuscript, go look at some of the earlier 1st and 2nd century translations like the Syriac and those. Jehovah Witnesses, for instance, will translate 1 John 
or not First John, John 1, 1, as in the beginning, um, or let's see, the word was with God and the word was a God. They'll translate it like that, which is not proper in Hebrew or Greek. Uh, but they do that. There's actually one of the uh, um, Egyptian ancient Coptic, I think it's the Hasidic, or Hasidic rather, translation of it that translates it the same way. And you can tell this. It's interesting to look at all the different languages and all the different translations of Scripture, all saying exactly the same, except in one place, the upper hills of Egypt, which is where the Gnostics hung out. Which It all kind of comes back together as you study it more and more. Well, Clement of Alexandria went down in the midst of this, and he takes over the school and, and runs it. And he says this, basically the same kind of thing. There are no secret doctrines handed down by the apostles, just the scriptures. Only heretics would dare say that there are secret doctrines from the apostles, which you must know to correctly understand scripture. So anybody telling you that is messed up. He says, for a thing to be true, a thing must be proven scientifically by comparison and testing. And that's what we're doing. We have the manuscripts. We look at them. Some of them have verses cut out. And so why? We go back to history and look. True Christians do not divide the body of Christ, but heretics try to. I'm not going to say if you're a Roman Catholic or a, a whatever that you're immediately going to die and go to hell. I'm not going to say if you don't convert, I'm going to kill you. That's what a heretic does. And that makes sense. If I think you're going to die and go to hell, I would like to talk with you, not kill you. I don't want to send you there. I want to talk to you and hopefully get you to not go there to begin with. It doesn't make sense. If I'm an infidel and I'm going to go to hell, why whack my head off? Why don't you talk to me? And if your religion is correct and you know that I'm wrong and you can prove it and I'm intelligent, you ought to be able to convert me. Why don't you talk to me? So he goes on and says, uh, except no doctrine that is not clearly taught in Scripture. It must be proven logically and completely from Scripture or it is just an opinion. Now, anyone who divides the body of Christ by opinions is sinning against the body of Christ. Okay. So there's a lot of things we're not sure about. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, for instance. Some people are pre, some are mid, or some are post. And whenever it happens, we'll all agree at that point. Um, I, I think it's pretty easily proven that it's pre, but that's another subject. But if you disagree with me on that, I'm not going to try to kill you. I'm not going to try to argue with you. I would sit down and try to reason with you. Matter of fact, I did that when I, when I was writing my book on the rapture. I got everything done the way I thought. And I went and found a couple of guys that were mid-tribs and didn't argue with them. It's like, okay, show me how you get it from Scripture. you know. And they had a few good points. They couldn't really tie them together very well. And I was saying, well, if this goes with that, how do we know? Oh, it does. Yeah, but I mean, how do you get from point A to point B? Is there another Scripture? And, you know... He actually thought he converted me, which I thought was interesting because I never said he was wrong. It's like, okay, well, how do you get from point A to point B? It's like, well, I don't know. I'll go check it out. So hopefully he got him studying and that kind of thing. 
So anyway, everything should be done that way. Uh, we shouldn't divide. Now, the scripture does talk about dividing over mandatory issues. If you say you're a Christian, but you want to murder people, um, you're an abortionist, abortion doctor. You want to steal things. You want to commit adultery, uh, homosexual or heterosexual. You want to do practice these things. According to scripture, I'm supposed to back away from you. I'm not supposed to have lunch with you. Uh, even if you're doing something like um, idolatry. I don't care. If, personally, I don't care. It doesn't bother me if you carry an idol in your pocket. But somehow it offends God. He considers that to be a very serious offense. And he's commanded me not to do that. So I want to follow scriptures. But it has to be proven scientifically. I can show you in the scriptures where it says don't have practice with idols. I can show you where it says don't fornicate. I can show you where homosexuality is listed as a sin. It should be pretty obvious. So I can't show you a verse that specifically says pre-tribulational rapture. Wish I could, but... So, but there are some things that we have to divide over. Okay, he goes on and says, um, it is necessary to show how the scripture and the ancient church are there both the most exact knowledge and truly the best set of principles. So what he's talking about here is the scriptures are clear. The first and second century church practiced those principles, and it's very clear and when someone else either starts teaching something different or doing something different, there is a difference. A differences are problems. I can show you where people would rise up. Like one of the things in the beginning, one of the very first her heresies was about baptism. Uh, does baptism do something? If it does, let's hurry up and baptize the infants before they die. You know, in a place where infant mortality is way up. Or if you're dying and... Um, um, we're supposed to baptize you. you know, this is back in the ancient days. It's in the middle of winter. You might survive, but if I take you outside and dunk you in a frozen pond, you will not survive. I guarantee, you know, the, the fluenza or whatever. So why don't I sprinkle you? You know, so those kind of things begin to come up for various reasons, sometimes logical. And, but every time those things come up, the church immediately attacks that as heresy. That's not what it says. It's not mandatory for salvation. It doesn't impart grace. So we don't need to risk your life for it. If you're alive next spring, we will baptize you. If, if you are following scriptures, Justin Martyr said that you have to first become a Christian and then be watched for six months. And if you actually are living the life and are growing in Christ, then you're obviously a Christian and we will baptize you. But we don't just baptize anybody, you know. You mispartake of the Lord's Supper, you could die. It's a serious thing. So those kind of things happen in the church. So he goes on and says these things. And it's nice to see that. When you're looking at a certain doctrine and you see the scriptures teach it clearly, they practiced it and taught the same thing for the first 200 years. Someone else comes along and teaches something else. They're attacked as a heretic. And now today it's a common practice. You can see how it changed, so you know what's correct and what's not. Another guy, Tertullian, he's one of the first Latin fathers. He lived about 190. He wrote a whole lot. In his prescription, yeah, I can't talk, Against Heretics, Prescription Against Heretics, title of his book, he said, The apostles did not keep any secret doctrine. 
but taught everything openly. Only heretics teach a secret gospel, letter, or doctrine. Okay, so one of the things we're going to get to this afternoon. If the church fathers taught, there always have been four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I have the gospel of Ken. My book is probably fake. It shouldn't be that hard. Okay, but then you're going to say some people will say, well, maybe the church was tweaking stuff and they didn't like certain people and they made them push it back. We're going to explore that. We're going to actually look at some of the heretical doctrines this afternoon. And I think it'll be pretty easy for you to decide. But only heretics teach that there's a secret gospel uh, letter or doctrine. He also goes on and says the apostles did not give any special information to favorite friends. You know, like popes and stuff. You know, special doctrine. They taught everything openly. That, that makes sense, doesn't it? What Jesus did was for our salvation. Everybody here needs to get saved. So everybody needs to know. If there's anybody that doesn't quite understand, let's go over it again. Everybody needs to know for sure. So the secret stuff that I only give to the higher people, that doesn't make any sense. I'm sure if you went and asked Xavier... What is exactly how do the ushers do what they do? It wouldn't be a secret. He may not make you an usher, but it wouldn't be a secret that only the hires know. This is what's going on. And he goes on and says, uh, even if a heretic were to actually produce or contrive a list like the succession of the apostles, they wouldn't even advance one step in their cause. Their very doctrine, when we compare it to that of the apostles, on its own diversity and discrepancy, proves that it neither had an apostle or an apostolic man for an authorship. For authorship. So if you come in and you say that I got this by the power of the Holy Spirit, or my great-grandmother had succession all the way back, it'd be my grandfather, I guess, all the way back to whoever, and I have this secret letter from Pope Peter himself, and you were actually able to produce it, and it was a first century document. That's nice. What difference does it make? If you're teaching something other than what's in the Word, you're a heretic. I don't care. If you're teaching exactly what the Word says, we don't need the secret epistle of Peter, because we've already got it. So either way, it doesn't matter. Very, very clear in these. And the last thing that he mentions in... Um, his, his work here is, he says, it will be manifest that where the true Christian faith is, there will be a tr the true scriptures and the correct exposition thereof. Whenever you get real Christians together, fake stuff begins to disappear if they keep correctly studying the scripture. And like I've told people this before, I had one person that uh, said that they were thinking about working with Jehovah's Witnesses. And, but they wanted to read other stuff, <clears throat> but the cult says not to read you know, those things and everything. And I said, well, look, take time. Don't read anybody else's books. Get a Bible. Spend time, you yourself, reading the Bible on your own. And, and read the Jehovah Witness stuff when they want you to. But most of the time, like at least twice as often as you read their stuff, just read the Bible, just a King James or a regular Bible. Just read it. Study it. 
And he's kind of surprised that I said that. And after a while, it's like, man, you know, those guys are nuts. How did you know that? I well, I read the Bible. It actually was pretty obvious. And did I tell you anything? No, you just told me to read the book. So I didn't influence him. I'm not a cult taking him away from the other group. So do study things, but always spend twice as much time as you study other things, studying scripture, going back over it, making sure. Okay, so the uh, early church, uh, we talked about these guys then. They all basically had the same books of the Bible. People will ask me, well, how do we know the gospel of Judas is not supposed to be in the Bible? How did we get this? It's actually very, very simple. It goes back to prophecy again. It starts with one guy whose name was Moses. And he writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So why do I care? He did miracle after miracle. He destroyed nations with the power of God. He brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. That's enough. That's, that's proof. So those should be in the canon. The next was Joshua. And then we go on, go on down with the kings and the chronicles and Elijah. Elijah stood up and made prophecies. And then they came to pass. So anybody that does miracles, that makes prophecies, and you see them come to pass and they write a book, we put it in the canon. These other people that supposedly make prophecies, these cults have their prophets and prophetesses. They're never accurate. They have to be 100% accurate, by the way, according to Scripture. They mess up once. We take them in the backyard and leave them there on top of a pile of stones. Uh, that's, it's serious. If it's, if it's serious to kill people... It's equally serious to God when you lie in his name. God told me to tell you this. Shut up. God did not tell you that. Leave me alone. So we have to be careful of these things. So it's important. So when we look at the Gospels then, let's look at what these, these things are. There's an ancient fragment. It's called the Maturionian Canon Fragment. And it's only called that because there was this guy named Maturioni that found it. So... But it's probably an epistle written by Caius. So this is back in the second century. And it basically tells us what is supposed to be in the New Testament. The Old Testament's pretty stra straightforward and, and sound. I don't think anybody questions anything. Um, but it's a fragment. So it starts off the first chapter or so is gone. And this, this will take just a little bit. But just listen to this. It starts off saying, At which, nevertheless... He was present, so he placed it in his narrative. I have no idea what we're talking about. We just walked into a conversation. He's talking about apparently Mark. Matthew, Mark, and now he's going to get to Luke. The third gospel is that of according to Luke. Luke was a very well-known physician. He wrote by his own name. He is widely believed that he wrote after the ascension of Christ when he was traveling with the apostle Paul. Luke had a great zeal for making sure all information is completely correct. It is true that he had not seen the Lord in the flesh, yet having ascertained the facts, he was, he was able to begin his narrative with the narrative or the nativity of John. So he, was a, he traveled with Paul and checked things out, interviewed people. There's a... There is a work, was a work, by a church father named Hagasippus that was a five-volume commentary on the Gospels. 
And it's said that if you had any question at all about the Gospels, the answer would be in that volume. And it was destroyed by somebody who didn't want us to have it. But it, it may be dug up one day. But there are things like that. There are people that would go back and check with people who, well, my grandfather, you know, talked with Mary. And there was this one time when they were out in the park. And all these stories could be gathered. So apparently there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the third gospel. John, the fourth book of the gospel, is the one by John. In response to an exhortation of his fellow disciples, he, was, he said, fast with me for three days. Let each of us tell each other what would be revealed to each one. The same night it was revealed to Andrew, one of the apostles, that John should relate in his name the history. So that there would be no discord throughout the different selections given the facts of the individual books of the Gospels and the faith of the believers should be, should be secure. And he goes on and talks about several of those things. Those things that we have all seen with our eyes and heard with our ears and our hands have handled, those things we have written. John professes, professes not to be the one and only eyewitness, but a hearer and narrator of all the wonderful things that our Lord did in their order. So this is talking about how apparently we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four Gospels. And then he goes on and he says, Moreover, the Acts of the Apostles was written by Luke to a guy by the name of Theophilus. Luke wrote about individual events that took place in his presence. He clearly shows this by omitting the crucifixion of Peter, the departure of Paul when Paul sailed from Rome to Spain. So in other words, Luke, when he got into the book of Acts, only wrote the things when he was there and he was an eyewitness of. So it ends with Paul being in prison for two years in a prison house, and then it ends. that We don't record the rest of the stuff when he was released and he traveled to the West, preached his last time, came back, was recaptured, and then beheaded. And Peter being beheaded. None of those things are recorded in the book of Acts. Very important. Now, according to Paul's epistles, this is what it says. Paul's epistles, what they are about and to whom they are written, it is clear to anyone who reads them. First of all, Paul wrote at length to the Corinthians to correct a heretical system there. To the Galatians to forbid circumcision. Then to the Romans, in the order of the Old Testament scriptures, showing that Christ is the chief matter in them, each of these necessary for us to discuss, seeing that the blessed Apostle Paul himself, following the example of John, writes to more than seven churches by name in the following order, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Thessalonians, and Romans. He's the probable chronological order. But he writes twice for the sake of correction to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians. So we should have First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Corinthians. There are other texts that they supposedly wrote that some are being were preserved by the early church, but are not to be included in the canon. This is what always has been accepted in the canon. Again, what did Paul do? He did miracles. Remember, he used to put handkerchiefs on people and heal them. All the miracles that he did, he was stoned to death once or twice and got up and came back. Uh, all the things that John did, the visions and everything. 
so they proved themselves by their works. So it is shown by these seven epistles that there is one church spread out through the whole earth. Likewise, John also wrote the Apocalypse, through which he writes to seven churches. Even though he does that, he speaks to us all. He wrote out of affection and love to an epistle to one person by the name of Philemon, one to Titus, and two to Timothy. These are all held sacred by the universal church in the regulation of ecclesiastical discipline. So these are the things. So we got the four gospels. We got the one history book. And then we've got the letters of Paul. Now, there are some forgeries out there, he says. There are also circulating one epistle to the Laodiceans and one to the Alexandrians forged in the name of Paul against the heresy of Marcion. Now, there is a Laodiceans. Paul mentions it in the back of Colossians, and he commands us to read it. But it's not included in Scripture. But there are fake versions of these things. There are many others which cannot be received to the universal church, for it is not fitting that gall be mixed with honey. Further, the epistle of Jude, two bearing the name of John, are counted among the general epistles. Uh, apparently, this person was thinking that Third John was just a personal letter. We receive the apocalypse of John only. Some accept the apocalypse of Peter, although some refuse to have it read in church. And if we had time and went and looked at it, we'd see what it's about. And again, it's pretty obvious. But the revelation of John is the last book of the Bible. You may have heard of the book called The Shepherd of Hemaeus, one of the apocryphal type books. He says this, But Hermas, who wrote The Shepherd, he did so in the city of Rome most recently in our times, when his brother Bishop Pius was occupying the chair at the Church of Rome. And so it might be read, but that it be made public to the people in the church and placed among the prophets whose number is complete or among the apostles is not possible to the end of time. There are some good things out there written by church fathers, but we do not add them to the canon. The canon is the books that we have. Now he talks about Gnostic cults. We reject everything written by Arsenus, Valentinius, Melitides. We also reject those people who wrote the new book of Psalms, Marcion, Basilides, the, the founder of the Aegean Cataphrygians. And, and that's where it ends. I'd like to know what the rest of that was. It took me a while to figure out who those heretics were and what they, what they taught. We'll get into some of that later. But basically what I'm trying to show you here with this is from the very beginning... We have a small canon, and when the prophets come and, and write the kings and the chronicles and the prophets, each one of those is added to the canon. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, he's saying, I was praying and I realized, because I read the prophecy of the 70 years out of Jeremiah, that today is when it's finished. So I started praying that the Lord go ahead and release us. And this angel came. And so he's telling us these things. So in his day, he had the minor prophets and he had Isaiah and Jeremiah and probably Ezekiel. And he's finishing up. And then the last of the minor prophets teach about when the Messiah comes and the date for the Messiah coming is set in Daniel. So if you have a calendar and you can read and you pay attention, you would have known the time the Messiah would come. Now, who in 32 AD 
or close to it. If that's when he's going to get killed, he's got to be born before. So before 30, like maybe 30, 31 or something, who's running around healing blind people, casting out devils, doing all sorts of miracles, teaching, gathering a following? Well, there's a lot of false people gathering followings, but who was there at that time doing that? One person. My guess is that he's the Messiah. It's not that hard. He has 12 disciples. They write the New Testament, the last of which is the book of John, or a book of Revelation written by John. In there, it tells us about two prophets that come along the scene during the tribulation period. So my guess is if anybody ever does add to the canon, it would be those guys. That's way in the future. So when Joseph Smith comes along or somebody else comes along and says, I have a new revelation, I don't see you in a rebuilt temple casting fire out of your fingertips, so I don't think I'm going to accept your revelation. So it's very, hard, very easy to understand that. So, again, what happened when we look at these things? The church fathers tell us that we have all the scriptures that we need. They're guarded. They're, they're preserved. They're not messed up in any way, shape, or form. They're going to be preserved. And along comes these heretics, these Gnostics. One was Marcion, and he was probably the main principal guy to start out a few things. He rejected the entire Old Testament because he said the Old Testament was the God of the Jews and the Jews were the, the evil people. Man, that sure gets, comes around every five minutes, doesn't it? Um, <clears throat> he used a cut-up version of Luke with the references to Jesus being Christ or Creator removed. Okay. He used a cut-up version of some of Paul's epistles. And he is the one that actually created, according to the church fathers, the gospel of Paul. There is such a thing. And we'll talk about that this afternoon. But apparently, Paul didn't write the gospel of Paul. Apparently, Marcion did it. So it's a fake work. It'd be interesting to see what he teaches and why he wanted to do such a thing. Another guy was Tassian. He was a guy, he was a convert of... Uh, of, a, of a Justin Martyr. Let me make sure I'm not going over time here. Um, he wrote uh, a harmony of the Gospels, and he removed every reference of Jesus' divinity. He rejected all of Paul's epistles, and he used a work called Second Clement. Now, there is a work called First Clement. It was written by Clement, who became the second or third bishop of Rome. He was taught by Peter. It's an excellent, excellent document. Second Clement is fake. It's like in, the, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have the Book of Enoch. It's ancient. There's Second and Third Enoch written by Gnostic heretics. We know when they wrote them. We know who wrote them. We know why they wrote them. It's all recorded in church history. Uh, Clement is interesting because when I talk to Catholics, a lot of times they'll say, well, by what authority do you say the things that you do? And I keep thinking Protestant, you know, so I'm like, the Bible, you know. They're like, no, I mean like, a Jehovah Witness comes to your door and says his authority is the Bible too, right? So why would I believe Ken's interpretation of the Bible over the Pope? Very, very good question. Well, my authority is the first and century, first and second century bishops and popes. If you want to call bishops of Rome popes, then I'll do that. So what do they say? Well, Clement, who is a second or third bishop of Pope, wrote First Clement in which he says that we are saved by grace through faith alone without any form of works. That goes against the current popes. Okay? So 
Do I want to believe the ancient popes who knew the apostles or the current popes who have never met anybody? You know, and that actually gets people thinking. We need to stop and actually think and go on with these things. Um, then there's the Ebionites. They used a cut-up version of the Gospel of Matthew. And it was called the Gospel of the Hebrews. Now, there is a real Gospel of the Hebrews the church fathers talk about. It's the book of Matthew written in Hebrew, given to a group of Hebrews. It's just the book of Matthew. But there's another Gospel of the Hebrews that is different. So I'm going to make sure that our time is not going too far here. 11.50. Okay, I'm supposed to end right about now. So what we're going to do is when we come back, we'll kind of continue this, and we're going to look at some of the Gnostic works. What I want you to see from this then, this morning we looked at the Scriptures. We know the prophecies are specific. If you have a Bible that is missing certain verses, especially on those prophecies, you need a different Bible. You know, and study with the Greek and the Hebrew the best you can. Stay away from any book written by a cult, anything like that. And we know what the church fathers said. There were cults that rose up that tampered with. That's where those scriptures came from. So if you have an NIV, for instance, that's, that's based on the critical text, the critical text is made up of documents, the real ones plus the fake ones put together. That's why they're not consistent. The fake ones were doctored by these heretics. And we have documents to give the date, who did it, why, and when. In many cases, which cult did it. So very, very straightforward. So when you have people today saying the smallest must be the most accurate, they've never looked at history at all. So it's like me saying every German must be a Nazi. Oh, wait a minute. Do you not know World War II is over? Go back and read history. Figure out what happened. So we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll finish that and look at some of these other Gospels and have our conclusion when we come back after lunch.